The nail in the coffin! Welcome to The Nail. I'm Tom Valentino. He is Travis Uli. It's Thursday night, my favorite night of the week to record. Trav, I don't even know. Are you traveling this week or are you home at uh, Stately Uli Manor? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm hanging at the homestead here in uh, in the state capital. Um, haven't been on the road for a couple weeks, actually. It's been pretty nice. All right. Good deal. Good deal. Well, uh, the, uh, the Indians and the city of Cleveland just wrapped up a very successful All-Star week. And uh, second half of the Tribe season uh, begins Friday night at home against the Central Division-leading Minnesota Twins. And to help us get ready, we're joined by Jim Ingram. Jim was a longtime Indians beat writer for the News Herald and the Lorraine Morning Journal. And he is now a sports columnist for the Illyria Chronicle-Telegram and the Medina Gazette. He also writes for Forbes. Jim, it's been a long time since we've talked. How are you, sir? I'm doing good, Tom. It's good to hear your voice again. We have uh, uh, a long, extended roots, I guess, back to those old News Herald days. That's right. That's right. It's good to get the band back together. And, uh, you know, it was a good All-Star week, and uh, especially for Shane Bieber. He certainly put his name on the map on uh, Tuesday night uh, with the uh, MVP performance. I'm uh, just kind of curious from everything that uh, took place down at Progressive Field. What uh, what were your takeaways? What are you going to remember um, from uh, the past few nights? Well, I think Cleveland did a tremendous job with the whole. It's, it's you know it's it's you know 20 years ago or 25 years ago, whatever it was when when Sandy Alomar won the MVP at the the All Star game in Cleveland. It, it, back in those days, it was just you played the all-star game, and that was pretty much it. I mean, there might have been a home run derby that year. I'm not sure. But now it really has become like a three-day extravaganza with uh, all the stuff for the, the kids and the fans and, and, and the, the Futures game, the home run derby, and then the all-star game. And, and Cleveland, I have to say, really, really did well. I mean, I had writers from out of town tell me, you know, just unsolicited praise for how the whole thing had been worked out logistically and everything, and there were there were virtually no glitches anywhere, and, and it really they kind of got rave reviews uh, from start to finish, and it helped that uh, <clears throat> for uh, Cleveland had a rare three day three days in a row with uh, good weather, which hasn't been much of the the case very often this year. So it really went well, and and and. It was a good three days, and you know, the, the the home run derby was probably the best one ever, I would suppose. And um, and uh, the futures game was good; it always is. And and then the game, uh, the, the All Star game was was really good. I, I thought the uh, tribute to uh, uh, well, all cancer patients, but especially Carlos Carrasco coming out on the field for that uh, <clears throat> that brief moment there uh, was really a, a very memorable one because I don't think anybody. Well, in fact, I know not every anybody really thought. Or knew that that was going to happen, and it was kind of a really nice moment. And then, you know, Shane Bieber, of all people, winning the the MVP award. I mean, it's not often in the All-Star game you win the MVP award in the fifth inning. I mean, usually it's you know some dramatic thing at the end, or maybe a hitter goes three for four, or hits a couple home runs or something. But, but Bieber, I have to say Bieber's inning really did stand out. I mean, he struck out the side, and, and the, the last one, the last strikeout, it was a a 3-2 count, and the whole crowd is chanting his name, and it would have been very easy for him to just, you know, miss the strike zone there, but he went ahead and struck out the third guy, and 
no one, you know, it was a big, exciting moment, and it didn't really register, I don't think, with many people that that was going to be the MVP moment. But by the end of the, the end of the game, that's the way the voters went, and so that kind of really put the icing on the cake for uh, a good three-day uh, three-day run for the the city of Cleveland and for the Indians. Yeah, just kind it's, of a per- – Trev, go ahead, go ahead. No, yeah, I was just going to say, it seemed like the general national sentiment, and it echoed sort of what you said. Have you been to – have you been to all-star games elsewhere? Um, is it yeah. Is it one of those things where everyone afterwards says, oh, yeah, the city did a great job, or did Cleveland really sort of stand out for, for doing it better than most? You know, uh, I, my recollection is you don't you don't really hear negative stuff. You just won't hear, like, anything good or bad, I think, in, in, in some years where – all-star games I've been to, they, you know, they, the game takes place, and that's pretty much it. There's not a lot of complaining necessarily. But this one, there was, like I said, like unsolicited praise from uh, even the commissioner made a lot of comments uh, with, in the meeting with the, the media uh, on the day of the uh, the afternoon, the morning of the game, and 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 you know, agents and and other managers, both managers, I think, praised Cleveland and the way it, uh, the whole thing ran and. You know they had the parade with the red carpet, and that was a big, a uh, big success as well. So, yeah, I think, I think, I think the fact that there was so much uh, talk about the way it was handled that it, uh, compared to a lot of the other games I've been to in other cities, like I said, you didn't get complaints from people; you just got kind of like silence about the, the the whole thing. So I thought that kind of told you it was kind of a little bit better than the normal All Star experience. All right, let's talk about the first half of this season. A uh, pretty weird three months uh, for the Indians. A lot of consternation about the uh, tribe's failure to address some glaring areas of need in the offseason. The Twins came out like a house of fire. Uh, the Indians' starting rotation gets decimated by injuries, and in the case of Carlos Carrasco, a pretty serious illness. Uh, the offense was pretty much dormant for two months. And yet, here we are. The Indians, record-wise, are pretty much right where they usually are. Um, and if it weren't for the Twins coming off the top rope to start the year, um, you know, they, they'd be back right up at the top of the division. But as it stands, they're still in position for a uh, a playoff spot. Uh, Jim, what do you make of this uh, first 90 games or so? Well, it really has been a kind of a confusing three months. It, it looked... Uh... As you said, uh, out of the gate, uh, it looked pretty bleak for the Indians. And just when you thought it was not going to get any better, it got a whole lot better and very fast. And, and it was, uh, um, you know, the Indians started slow. But then the, right around the end of May and early June, they started to put it together. And then the, and the, 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 the offense, which had just been pretty much pitiful for the first couple months, all of a sudden started clicking. And the pitching, to me, the pitching is remarkable what they've achieved with the starting rotation with with basically Kluber missing the whole first half, Clevenger missing virtually the whole first half, <clears throat> Carrasco missing the last two months or six weeks. And yet every minor leaguer they brought up to fill in on the, in the rotation pitched outstanding, and they were able to kind of hold the fort. And, and now you look up and the Twins went through a real – Tough stretch for them. I think they're they're barely a, like a 500 team over the last uh, I want to say six weeks of the uh, of the season going into the break. So you know they they cut it from 11 and a half games down to five and a half, and now they play them in a three game series starting tomorrow night, and they play each other 13 times in the second half. So 
you know, it's going to be kind of interesting because the Indians aren't really accustomed to, uh, you know, the, when they win the division, they usually win it handily. And now this year they're having to come from behind and try to catch and, and pass a, a really good Twins team. I mean, the, their lineup, even on opening day, I remember thinking when you saw the two lineups and you just said to yourself, well, offensively, this is a mismatch with the Twins lineup. They got like five or six guys that could hit 20 home runs, and the Indians. You know, only really only for most of this half, only had like two hitters you really had to worry about, and that was uh, Lindor and Santana. So um, I, I don't know. I, I have no explanation for it other than Terry Francona. I mean, he just he, this is why he's the, you know probably a Hall of Fame manager when he gets done because he's able to keep teams together and keep grinding away. And you know, sometimes when you just keep doing that, things start falling into place for you. And now here they are with a half a season to go, and they still have a legitimate chance. I'm going to throw a couple of names out at you that I think also um, played very big roles. We already mentioned uh, Bieber and just what he meant to the starting rotation um, with, uh, you know, uh, Corey Kluber's injury and, and Carlos Carrasco and uh, Clevenger missing a ton of time. But then you look at the uh, the lineup as well, and Oscar Mercado has been a real big deal and a, and a real find, and uh, I've been amazed by what we've seen out of Roberto Perez. I think a lot of people yeah. probably figured – uh, from the catching position offensively, you know, Tribe would probably take a step back dealing away Jan Gomes and uh, uh, Perez has completely outperformed him so far this year. Yeah, you're right. And I'm one of those people that thought the catching situation was going to be a disaster because I remember <clears throat> last season, you know, of course now Perez was a backup catcher back then, but still last season he didn't even reach double figures in RBIs till the month of September. And he, he was not very good defensively, even though he's, you know, uh, traditionally been pretty good defensively, and so when they traded Gomes and said they were going to give the you know the job to, to Perez, uh, I think a lot of people in Cleveland cringed over that, myself included. But I was totally wrong. I got to admit that, and 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 he's he's been he's been uh, you could almost argue in some ways he's been their MVP in the first half. I mean, catching and playing well defensively and and hitting uh, 16 home runs. I think he's hit now, and I mean he very well could have been on the All Star team. And uh, he's gotten a lot of big hits for them. He's been durable. And, you know, the pitching staff hasn't taken any dip at all pretty much uh, with him behind the plate as opposed to when Gomes was behind the plate last year. So, yeah, that to me is one of the one of not just the biggest surprises on the Indians, but one of the biggest surprises in the league that uh, Perez has stepped up like that. And, uh, and Mercado is an interesting guy. The Indians have always been really good at identifying emerging or potential uh, impact players in other teams' organizations uh, from the minor league level. And Mercado, I think, is the latest example of that. Uh, they, they actually thought about opening the season with him, but they thought with the cold weather they might not be able to play him every day, and they didn't think that was fair for a rookie making a major league debut to have to not play every day to kind of get into a rhythm. But since they've called him up, I mean, he's been faced with a lot, and it didn't take him long to – not just show he belonged, but you know he's kind of hit his way into the second number two spot in the order, which is an important spot in any order. And, and he's really, really held his own. I mean, he, he can help the team in a lot of ways. He's got good speed. He's a good defender in center field. He can steal you some bases and hit some home runs. And he's, you know, he's hitting. He's been hitting close to 300 for the whole time he's been up here. So, I mean, that's that's really been a big find for them, given the. Uh, uh, the troubles they've had, you know, at all three outfield spots this year, generating any offense at all. And Jim, you mentioned the the pitching staff a minute ago. It's kind of been weird how how they've looked this year because you know they came in and everybody thought the starters were going to sort of be 
the backbone of the team. And at times they have, but there's been so much inconsistency with Carrasco being out and Kluber being out and Clevenger even missed significant time. Um, everyone seems to be mentioning that the idea or, you know, sort of assuming that if the Indians do something, it's going to involve one of those starters, right? What, what, what do you think that, that I guess the starting rotation looks like at the end of the year, if um, assuming that they're not going to be major sellers, um, I think we're all sort of of the mindset that they've gotten it competitive enough with the twins that they're not going to, you know, start selling right away. But do we think that that looks the same, you know, in a couple months as it does now? I don't think it's, I don't think it's a, uh, a lock that they'll have the same rotation by the end of the year. They're really in an interesting position here because the traditional trade deadline labels uh, don't really apply to them, potentially don't apply to them because, for example, if they were to trade Trevor Bauer, let's just say to the Yankees for Clint Frazier and another player, that would seem to indicate that the that they were sellers, but actually if they got an impact bat back that they could plug into the outfield and contribute right away, they would actually be improving their outfield. So, you know, by definition, they would be sellers, but the effect of such a trade, I think, would, would actually help them be a better offensive team. So maybe they're, they're buyers. I mean, it's a weird weird kind of a thing that what on the surface would look like a trade that a seller was making would actually be one that helped them immediately. And I, and I, I actually think that would be a pretty wise thing for them to do, and I think there's a chance that they do do it, that uh, – they find, if not the Yankees, another team with some outfield surplus or just hitting surplus that they can get another hitter in here because it's really kind of bleak, even with the, with all the guys they've had, and they're all starting to hit a little bit better now, but they're still missing that one big bat. The, the Jose Ramirez situation has really crippled them as far as uh, the depth of their lineup because he's he's gone from being a, an, MV, an MVP candidate to, to barely a replacement player level guy right now, and, and, and it's it's that spot in the lineup has is, is kind of been a black hole. And so uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they traded a, a starting pitcher and Bowers the obvious candidate uh, uh, for a hitter. Uh, Rich Hand would, or Brad Hand would be another one that uh, I think could be a potential. Uh, it's almost like the reverse of the the uh, Andrew Miller situation last year where, where the Indians gave up two top prospects for a difference maker in the bullpen uh in Miller, uh, if the Indians could find a, a contender that needed a, a, you know, a difference maker in the bullpen, and if you dismiss the last couple appearances for Hand uh, in the first half, and also actually in the All-Star game, uh, he's been really good, and he's been leading the league for most of the year in saves. So I, th- I think it's reasonable to assume you could trade him and get a, get another really solid bat. So uh, I think I think there's a there's a Probably a little bit better average than average chance that they do trade a starting pitcher, and 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 I and I'd be surprised if it wasn't Bauer. But uh, I've been wrong many times before, so I you know I don't think they're going to take on a player with a big salary, so they're not going to go out and trade for a, a big hitter that they got to pay for the remainder of this year, even if that's all it is, or even beyond that. So I, I think it's got to be the right the right young affordable player who could be under control for them for the next three or four years that can come in and start hitting right away. Kind of like a a version of Mercado, I guess you'd say. So um, I think it's going to be a very interesting uh, trade deadline period for them because there's so many things, you know, they could do. They could make trades like I've just talked about, or they could, they could 
just do nothing. I mean, you know, they, they you could make the argument that hey, we've cut the lead down to five, and you know, with what we have, why should we tinker with anything? And that would be a defensible position. But when you remember that Bauer can be a free agent after next year, and the uh, the longer you keep him, the less you'll get back from him in a trade. Uh, I think that that factors into their decision making too. So. I'd be interested to see what they do because it, it could go in any number of uh, directions. Feels like this series this weekend against Minnesota could have real big implications for what the Indians end up doing uh, at the deadline in a few weeks because I believe this is the only time the Indians and Twins play before the trade deadline. I know they've got a few more series after that, but uh, I mean, you know, a sweep could take it down to two and a half games, uh, you know, or yeah. if it's a sweep going in the wrong direction. Yeah, you you know you're all of a sudden you're back at eight and a half, and at that point you're probably thinking uh, wild card at best. You know there was one other aspect of the trade deadline that uh, I thought was kind of interesting and a, a different wrinkle. You know, a few years ago I felt like the second wild card kind of changed how teams approached the deadline because there were more clubs that felt like they were still in the race. So you know the buyers versus sellers, the the math on that kind of. Uh, switched a little bit and you know we got another change this year uh that there's no more august 31st uh waiver trade deadline uh that's been eliminated so there's just the one trade deadline at the end of july and you know in the past few years the indians have kind of made some notable pickups in august you know i think they got jay bruce in august they got josh donaldson um do you think the math is going to kind of change for some teams only having one uh deadline at the end of this month now well, it could. It could actually increase the activity at the July 31st deadline because that's it. I mean, it's a, there's no safety net after this. You get a if you think you need to do stuff to strengthen your team, this is the deadline to do it by because uh, you're not going to get a second chance. Um, it, it, the wild card thing. I, I would never. Uh, uh, I would never make a trade. Well, I would say never. But in a situation like the Indians are in, had they not made this surge at the end of the first half and gotten back into the division race. Uh, picture, I, I would not make a, a significant trade, you know, hoping to get one of the well, wild card teams, one of the wild card spots. Because I, I just don't think that's that's worth mortgaging your future just to get a, a guy that might help you, in, you know, play one game and then you're going home for the winter. I, I'm not a big fan. Of, I mean, the wild card, I, I, I like it and it, it helps the, the 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 game and everything. But I, but I, I would not make a trade based on hoping you can get one of the wild card. Yeah, a team that hadn't been in the playoffs in ten years. I could see them doing it, but but not a, a team like the Indians. I I would hope they wouldn't do that, but uh, and they really shouldn't because now they, you know, all you got to do is look at the standings and see that they're back in the in the division race. And you're right about uh, this is the last time they play them before the trade deadline. And and in this particular case, you know, these three this is your three games where the Indians front office can really look and say, you know, this is the team we have to get ahead of. What do we need to get that'll help us get ahead of this particular team, and uh, that could lead to some trade speculation or or potential trades that uh, no one's even mentioned yet. So it's going to be an important, very important three games for the Indians and for the Twins, for that matter. All right, Jim. Before we let you go, 
Got to ask you about a little bit of infamous uh, tribe history. Monday, this coming Monday, uh, marks the 25th anniversary since Albert Bell's corked bat was confiscated in Chicago. Other players have obviously been busted for using corked bats over the years, but I don't know of many teams sending pitchers on missions uh, to uh, crawl through the uh, air ducts and break into the umpire's dressing rooms to steal bats back while games are going on. Uh, you were at Comiskey Park when all this went down, and I'm just kind of curious, um, what was that night like for you, and, and what do you remember from that? Well, it was, uh, you know, I remember thinking that you thought you'd seen everything you could possibly see from Albert Bell as far as controversy goes, and then this one took it to a whole nother level. And the White Sox clearly knew something was going on with his bats because it was the very first inning. They wasted no time in asking the umpires to confiscate it, and they did. And then um, uh, it was just chaos the whole, not just that day, but after the game the next day because I remember that there were like the FBI was in there dusting for fingerprints in, uh, in uh, the Indians clubhouse. And, and during the game, actually, after he conf- they confiscated the bat, we started hearing these, these rumors that, that uh that that it wasn't that, no it was after the game as i recall now that 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 uh it was revealed that the the bat that was in the umpire's room was no longer albert bell's bat it was paul sereno's bat which added another layer of intrigue to it and and then that you didn't have to be a genius to connect the dots there that uh you know that virtually clinched it that it was uh bell's bat because the bell had his bat uh, corked because, you know, they didn't replace it with another cork bat, so obviously all of his bats were corked, so they put Sereno's bat in there and thought that they could still get away with it. And then there, there, were, there, were, there were meetings constantly after the game. I know uh, Mike Hargrove and John Hart were meeting with the White Sox officials that day and then the next day, and, and it, was, it was like one of those – it was almost like baseball became a backseat to the whole uh, – uh, Mission Impossible aspect of it. No one knew it was uh, uh, Jason Grimsley that went up into the ceiling tile and did that to begin with. But it was it it, it was a story that just it kept topping itself. Like uh, every couple hours, something else would happen that, uh, that that took it to another level, and 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 then it just it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And the Indians were very upset about the whole thing because I think they thought that the the uh, the White Sox knew something ahead of time about the cork bat because why would they do that? I mean, so it was it was it was another instance of the Albert Bell saga that uh, that uh, probably one of the one of the more controversial ones ever, but uh, it's certainly one that everyone remembers. It was there that night. You know, it's easy to forget now with all the playoff appearances that followed, but in 94, that was the first time the Indians were in the division race in forever. So, I mean, when this went down in the middle of the season and it was against the team that they were chasing in the Central Division standings, I mean, the stakes were really high at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I think that then that's that's why I think they thought the White Sox were, something was going on there, because there had always been rumors that the White Sox had people on the scoreboard and the sign stealing and that whole thing. And, um, yeah, you're right. And the White Sox, as I recall, they, they were, uh, they were kind of coming on the same track as the Indians. I mean, they, they were a really good team then. And, uh, the Indians were getting really good. It was kind of like, 
you know, which team was going to emerge as the uh, the power in the the division for the next few years, and uh, so there was a lot of incentive on both sides to to uh, do whatever it took to win, I guess you'd say, and and uh, I guess Bell got carried away with it, and so maybe did the White Sox, but uh, yeah, and then the ir- irony of the whole thing, of course, was you know, the first week of August they canceled the entire the rest of the season, and neither team won the division because there was no resumption of play no world series or anything so it was a it was it was kind of a chaotic ending to a chaotic season for a lot of teams and really a chaotic night that night in chicago for the indians and the white Sox. did albert ever like comment on it like in real time i know since then he has mentioned it in in passing sort of um but did he give any like justification or try to explain it away? It's funny no, you mentioned. No, Obviously, I, all his bats were corked because because he didn't yeah. have one of his own to replace it with. But yeah, no, he didn't. He, he didn't. As was the case in a lot of his controversies. He never really explained himself. Um, <clears throat> but um, and you know, again, uh, that was another case where back in the steroid area or the cork bat era, I guess you'd call that period there. Uh, it was always the guys that didn't need the cork bats that seemed to do it the most, just like the, the guys that used the steroids were already the best home run hitters in the league. And for some reason they felt the need to, to, to hit even more and and, and did, to get into steroids. And, you know, if any hitter in the history of the game didn't need to doctor his bats to hit the ball farther, uh, it was Albert Bell who, could, you know, hit some of the most monstrous shots you could ever see. So, uh but yeah, you know, he was just that kind of certain sort of crazy where he he would do stuff like that, and you would just shake your head at you know why would you even risk getting caught when there was no really really need. I mean, you could make a good argument for like a 220 hitter to cork his bat, but not a guy that's like the the biggest slugger in the league for that whole era that to, to be doing it. So no, Albert Albert really never talked about much of any of his controversies uh, after the fact. He was. Uh, uh, I guess busy plotting the next one, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> you know, at, at that point in time, '94. Uh, this is way before social media, and uh, I mean, really, the internet was still pretty much in its infancy at that point. I cannot imagine what Twitter would have been like for for that uh, incident, uh, the Fernando Vina uh, collision yeah. that happened yeah. a couple years later. Uh, Albert Bell his career existing before the, the Twitter area is uh, a real shame. Yeah. Well, you know, everyone, people talk about Trevor Bauer's rambunctiousness on Twitter these days. Can you imagine Albert Bell, if he was ever on Twitter, huh. what, what could have been, he might've shut down the whole, the whole Twitter uh, existence. I, I don't know that anything could have happened there, but uh, yeah, you're right. It's, it's probably best for everyone that uh, his career ended before, uh, social media really took off because that that would have been that could have really gotten dangerous <laughs> <laughs> all right well this jim this has been a fun trip down memory lane i'm uh, i'm excited for the uh, second half of the indian season and uh it's been great catching up with you man really appreciate you taking the time yeah it's good to talk to you guys and uh, uh nice to talk to you tom and uh best of luck uh going forward all right sounds good Folks, we are on Apple Podcasts, we're on Google Podcasts, we're on Stitcher and the TuneIn app. You can stream us on waitingfornextyear.com. And uh, big thanks again to Jim Ingram for joining us. 
Uh, we will be back again soon, but in the meantime, uh, for Travis Julie, I'm Tom Valentino. It's been the nail in the coffin, and uh, we'll catch up down the road. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting, and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.